Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. In this episode, Josh and Benny Safdie take us behind the scenes of their new comedic crime drama, Uncut Gems. The film stars Adam Sandler as Howard, a charismatic New Yorker who is always on the lookout for the next big score. His latest scheme is a precarious high-wire act, balancing business, family, and encroaching adversaries on all sides in his relentless pursuit of the ultimate win. In addition to Uncut Gems, the Safdie brothers' directorial credits include the feature films Good Time, Heaven Knows What, Daddy Long Legs, and The Pleasure of Being Robbed, and the documentary Lenny Cook. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, the Safties spoke with director Kenneth Lonergan about filming Uncut Gems. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Hi, guys. Hey, Kenny. Uh, this is an amazing movie. Um, let's see. So I saw this with my... That means a lot from you. Oh, thank <laughs> so you. Thank you. Um, thank you. Uh, so I saw this with my wife at Lincoln Center, I think, about a month ago, and she said it was like having a two-hour and 15-minute anxiety attack. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think maybe... I mean, the thing I'm most curious about off the bat is, like, how did you guys... I hope this doesn't sound like when they ask actors how they memorized all those lines. <laughs> but how did you guys keep that amount of anxiety and tension? Did you deliberately make sure that it would never relax ever and that we would be driven <laughs> insane watching the movie uh, as he is? The uh, I, I think that it's kind of probably it's a, a byproduct of, of the longevity of the project, 10 years of working on something. Uh, the script kind of calcified and like, you know, so you're having... Gamble on top of gamble on top of gamble, gamble, which is an exact reflection of what happens in the diamond district. When you go there, there's a very palpable energy. You feel like you age within the day that you're there. Yeah, I felt like that watching the, the movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, they say New York to take some years off your life, so we're just again just adding, putting salt in the wound there. Uh, but uh, but uh, so I think you know the the from from a writing point of view. The tension and anxiety is is there because it's it's a glass onion and you're seeing all the layers at once. Uh, but, but you know it's also a thriller, and part of the um, you know part of the direction with with particularly with Sandler was you know that he has three channels on at the same time and that he has to bounce from one to the other and and they're also you know when we were when we were called, when we were doing the sound mix with the movie uh, I overheard one of the sound editors talking with one of uh, the dialogue editors and he was like what's up with what's up with Howard what's he got he's like bipolar what's going on with him and uh and they didn't know I was in the room yet and uh and I said I said I never thought about that and they said oh you're here and uh I said yeah I'm sure it's probably the word manic is in there in some way so I think that the ref- that, that that the anxiety that you're feeling is a Again, a reflection of yeah. the personality, but the, and, but the the way the movie functions is the humor. Yeah, obviously. well, and I, th- and I think it's like I asked somebody, like uh, they said, "Oh, the ending of the movie is so extreme." And I was like, "Oh, from when? From which point on?" I was interested, and they said, and they said a moment that was forty five minutes from 
the actual ending of the movie. And it's like that specific section, I remember like in specifically in the edit, got so shrink shrink wrapped and it was a very conscious thing that we wanted that pace to kind of the, each bet that he places, the bet next is even bigger. So you have the certain anxiety of the first bet, yeah. and then there's a, a kind of a plateau, and then he raises the stakes again, and then you're on a new level on that ride. So it's totally mirroring <laughs> how he goes about it. I, but yeah, also just on that point, I remember specifically saying to Sandler, almost like every day we would say to him, remember, you have no idea what happens to you at the end of this movie. Because he's uh, sometimes going to be, I would tell him, of course, no, you, you uh, get shot in the we, face. We remember he gets shot, yeah. but he doesn't know. But he doesn't know <laughs> yeah. in the moment. He's right. living his life as if it, it's impossible. I also know? think he's kind of living it like a eulogy in a weird way. There's a mythic, parabolic quality to the story. But I remember telling Rudin, uh, Scott Rudin, when 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 we were kind of about uh, ten months from production, he with the script, you know, there's over 160 drafts and uh, over 160 pages of 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 dialogue, of dialogue heavy dialogue script. And he's like, this movie is this too. The script, I love. I don't know. I can't suggest what should be cut, but it's too long. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, I know it's a hundred and sixty-three page script, but it's a ninety-minute movie. And he said, how is that possible? How is it going to be ninety-minute? I said, conceptually, it's a ninety-minute movie. So then, so then when he heard that, that, but that's the thing is, we approached it like a ninety-minute movie because yeah. it's a rush. Yeah. No, it's really amazing. I mean, it's yeah. I can only the only time I can think it relaxes is right before he makes one of his hugest mistakes mm -hmm. which was things are finally going well for him yeah. and then he decides to double down and make it much worse which is quite interesting can you just talk a little bit about the three balls that he's keeping in the air the three channels that that uh, as you guys see them i mean because there's well I, let me just there's the family there's the the sports and then i guess there's the the eric bogosian and i'm mixing them up together but i'm just curious structurally like in the writing and the directing since we're at the sure, sure. i mean in in particular there was a, um, I'll use a scene for it as an example. When he goes to the nightclub uh, after, you know, he gets accosted at his daughter's play, uh, that scene in particular, I was talking to Sandler about the three, the three channels, the A, B, and C. Uh, and I, you know, because it was we, the way we work was we just let everybody talk. We don't ever quiet anyone down. So it was kind of pandemonium in that nightclub. And you have the weekend who's willing to actually perform even when we're not even on him. Uh, so you have there's a general excitement. So he's when he's in talking with Lakeith's character, Damani, uh, I would kind of try in the middle of the scene. I would you remind Sandler, I said A, B and C. And sometimes I would say B and C. Uh, so A would be uh, the worry about the actual gemstone um, in that moment. Uh, B would be the the memory of being in the SUV and then later naked in your trunk. And then C would be your girlfriend. Who, there's actually a D. Who, who you don't, there might be a D. But there's, James. Well, yeah, D was, <laughs> D is the potentiality of a new client, the rapper who's trying to actually do a deal with him in the middle of him having that altercation with Lakeith. But C is the, is the girlfriend and the being confronted with what true greatness is and true innate greatness with The weekend, A guy who can just open his mouth and sing and he's great. Where Howard is constantly trying to prove his greatness and maybe that's, you know, he's, the movie is a little bit of accepting who you are. And, and uh, I mean, it's cheating God, too. And that's why he, he gets popped in the face. But and another good example is when he, I guess, when Kevin gets locked in that showroom. You know, we always, we had these rules where it was like when Howard's in the showroom, he speaks a certain way. You know, he has a kind of lilt to his voice when he's selling. When he's in the back room, 
he's all business and you're kind of seeing Howard behind the scenes. And then even with the camera, it's all handheld in that back room and it's mostly Steadicam and Dolly in that front room. And as soon as you cross that barrier, the switch happens. I remember we were talking with Darius all the time. We refused. It was like a force field. As soon as we like stepped a half inch over, it had to be the other way. Except during the scene with Kevin Garnett in the back, that was yes, one that of was the, well, that was the one of the only that scene and the scene with Julia uh, where he breaks down. Those are the only two scenes that are on the tripod yes, exactly. in that back room, uh, and they're the only scenes where he's kind of oh, letting everything, letting all those channels disappear. Yeah. Oh, that's really yeah. That's the kind of thing you don't. I don't notice all the time when I'm watching a movie because I'm into the movie and you don't. I don't stop to say, "Oh gosh, this." But is... But it adds to the anxiety a little oh, bit, yeah. probably. I'm sure. No, for sure. Um, and do you? Uh, let's see. Can, is there some? Can you just talk about the dialogue a little bit? Because I know I read that you had 45 pages of it, of ADR written out <laughs> yeah. in the in the press packet. It said yeah. you got, for the for the looping. But so when you're so having written the script, so when you're directing the scenes, is it? How closely do you stick to the script, and how much is improvised in the combination, and how do you do you wait to sort it out in the editing room, or mm -hmm. are you kind of writing it as you go, or some combination? So we have we have uh, I'd say the final product is like nine, 85 percent to ninety percent of the script. Yeah, uh, we had the benefit of following Sandler's uh, uh, fifty city comedy tour, where he did three and a half hours of material every night. Wow. So he had this kind of almost uh um almost mechanical way of memorizing blocks of dialogue and not only memorizing internalizing them and he you know he got involved about he attached himself 10 months before we shot so he was able to read and watch the script develop many drafts since he came on uh and we would do lots of readings together um and he you know as as howard howard in particular has is a motor mouth and uh and that and he knew that that if the words if their scene is uh, is unfolding and there aren't words he knew to improvise them uh to kind of just know that he in a weird way howard thinks if no if nothing stops nothing will go wrong yeah. uh it's almost just to keep it in motion and things will be okay because at least you're moving forward yeah. uh uh so the but the dialogue um the but the the way we work on set is we a lot we want things to be reflect reality as much as possible. So we go obviously on our casting process, uh, uh, but you know even with with the extras like you know that scene the sequence in the beginning of the movie where Kevin comes in with his entourage, that's like seven or eight people in yeah. there, and we encourage them to just be themselves in the jewelry shop because in a small reverberant room people are going to talk yeah. and. And your private, I hate in movies and television when there's a quote private conversation and it's, it's just not private at all. Yeah. And, and in particular, my experience in research in the Diamond District is you can have a yelling argument in a room, 12 by 12 room, and there's so much going on in that room that your yelling argument is still private. So we wanted to, we wanted that to be, we wanted that to come across yeah. between specifically with that conversation with Lakeith and, and, and Sandler's character. So, you know, we encourage that on set and then you can actually see that, I think, in their performance. And then later, when it came time to do our additional ADR recordings, submitted it to Scott and Eli and you know, they were like, well, what is this? So that's our ADR script. Just wanted to so you see it so you're not confused. So there's like three or four lines that need to be fixed in the movie. So I don't know. This is stuff that's happening 
as in the background. Yeah. And he's like, this is going to be a whole other movie in here. And, uh, and yeah, they, they allowed us to, to, to really indulge in, in that. And in then, the sound. and just like with just a touch on like when, when everybody's talking, you know, we would say even to the, to the people on screen, the main actors talking, you're allowed to step on each other. You could cut somebody off. You can ch- like move that around. That's alive there. And then of course you're like knowing that that's going to ha- lay in the edit. That yeah. could be, almost impossible to get that on screen because who's to say that they're stopping each other at the exact same point for a shot reverse shot it would be fine if it was just a two shot but we're doing it in singles on yeah. and they're both talking over it unless you want to do ADR to fix dialogue which isn't how we want it to work but yeah the the general feeling is we want to create this excitement and kind of there's no blocking you know we would shoot our rehearsals and have the actors kind of move through the set and then we adjust our kind of line of attack to capture that just to as much as possible to make it seem as if there's nothing like inhibiting a, a reality you know in a lot of I'll places. give a good anecdote Bogosian's character in the scene of the SUV that was his first day uh on the set so he he and you know he was in the SUV he's you know saying turn it around and he was watching Sandler really just get tackled tackled by people and he really knew the movie that he was in right away but then we did the interior of the SUV, and which was on a you know process trailer, uh, and Benny and I were in the in the trunk, and uh, you have all you have the th- the three guys in the back who are who add such a um, you know a bl- they they support the suspension of disbelief because it's there's no disbelief there, uh, and you know and I love all those three guys. They're in the and the casting of them was so important, yeah. and and uh, but you know. They're, that's their all of those guys. That's their first movie, and and uh, you know you're doing stunts with them where they have to grab and manhandle Sandler and undress him, and uh, and the stunt coordinator was playing the driver, and you have Bogosian obviously in the passenger seat, and the stunt the stunt coordinator really was just looking in the rearview mirror to make sure Sandler was okay, uh, because he would get choked out and Sandler would tap, and they would think that the tapping was him. Trying to, def- to to so kind would, of break, they through, so they hand would away, yeah. grab his hand and move it away, and he would start to get choked. Uh, but the but my point is, in the script, we had lines written there, but those were the type of lines that I was always like, "Let me get something down on paper, and then we'll really work with with the actors here and build it out." And and Eric's lines were real lines that had to, and he he kept couldn't find a way in to get his lines in, so he went crazy and he smashed the dashboard. I don't know about any of you, but I got fucking lines I gotta say, and and uh, and and everyone freaked out. Specifically, Keith, who plays the guy who who uh, uh, shoots him. Spoiler spoiler alert. Um, and and uh, you know, I had to you know go up and talk to Eric, and I said, you know, this movie, this whole movie is about posturing. You know, everyone's posturing, but in particular, Eric's character is posturing the most. Arno, and he's in over his head. He hired these guys to try to help retrieve money from his from his brother-in-law but he he uh he can't get he can't assert himself so i told him i said listen you here you can improvise some line you can if you can't get your word in you have to tell everyone to shut the fuck up then you can get your lines in. (laughs) assert yourself be the powerful be the alpha in the car and uh and you know he i could just see he was enraged 
Eric. I was seeing the guy who, in talk radio, I was seeing the guy who who I loved as an actor, and I'm now I'm seeing it firsthand as a director. And so angry, he was so pissed off, and but it, and you and you don't want to say something ridiculously corny like use that because what does that well, even mean? Well, use thing, that. But well, the thing is, because like the the direction for I guess one of Louis who was like, look at it, screaming, look at it. And he had a very specific moment. He had to punch Sandler in the stomach. And he had a hard time kind of gauging where it was amongst all the madness. And I remember saying to him, okay, as soon as you hear, so it, was, it had to get very specific. As soon as you hear Sandler say this word, you just punch the side. And so all he was doing was listening for that. So he couldn't really play off of Eric in the front, you know, because he's very specifically trying to get it in at a very specific moment. So yeah, Eric would literally just yell, everybody shut the f*** up. And then shut up. And then they would quiet over the car. And then he would say his People line. wouldn't know if he was angry <laughs> exactly, as Eric Bogosian yeah. or angry as Arno. But it didn't matter. So everyone would kind of get and it ended up it ended up playing like he's the boss. And and it was it was actually in that scene I released one second of urine. Uh and I just <laughs> laughter. You know, because I, I had a nervous laughter watching Adam Sandler, who I grew up loving, his comedy records and later his movies, just being denuded like that, pulling this this clothing off, and when the shirt comes off, and he's talking about his my glasses, I just, I just it's pissed. Horrible. Yeah, yeah, happened twice in the movie. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the next time it happened, or should we? It happened. On? It happened in Africa oh. when we were shooting the yeah. uh, in that in that mine. Because every time we come back, we had to fly to get there every um every we were there we prepped for like eight or nine days. And every time we went back, there were these new safety restrictions. First time we went, the whole, it was no one had ever, felt like no safety person had ever been to the mine. And, uh, you know, I fell into a plinth hole the first time I toured it. Luckily, I got, uh, my, I'm pretty narrow, but my hips, the plinth was pretty narrow, so my hips got stuck. So I didn't go down all the way, otherwise it would have been lights out. But I, but I, um, <laughs> that's funny to this person over there. Uh, the, uh, but, 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 so by the last time we, we were shooting there, it was, it was totally different. Mouth guards couldn't drink water, helmets, all this stuff. It's because you fell into the hall, so they <laughs> had to revise the regulations. Well, the, I think the, also the production, too, is just kind of like we have to have somebody make sure this is safe. Yeah. But I remember the guy coming in and letting us know, like, hey, so, you know, it was for a Dutch miner. It seemed like his only job was to, like, pull miners who were trapped out. Very scary guy who looked, who was, you know, a colonialist, basically, a weird Dutch colonialist. And he said, all the rocks that you see above you, you know, because we were in a part of the mine that was like, not, hasn't really been touched in a while. And he said, no loud noises while you're in here. I was like, no loud noises. The scene demands people chiseling. He's like, he's like, well, they're going to have to pretend. And I said, well, why? He goes, because a noise can knock loose one of those rocks. He pointed with a laser pointer. And I said, well, what happens then? He goes, they all fall because it's like they're all lodged together. And I said, well, what happens if they all fall? He goes, don't run. And I said, what am I supposed to do? He goes, you grab the wall and you pray. And I said, I pray? He said, yes. He goes, if you run, you will be crushed and you'll be destroyed. And, uh, and I said, oh, okay. Uh, so if I pray, what happens? He's like, well, the, the physics, the rocks most likely won't hit you, but you'll get pinned and I'll get you out. I've gotten many miners out. And uh, so I'm sitting there doing the scene and the two main miners didn't speak much English. I spoke almost no English. I was going through a translator and they spoke Ethiopian. And... Uh, and for some reason they got in it, you know, cause I really let the scene feel live and they just started wailing on the wall with the chisel and they were missing the part that was faked too. So they could actually make an indent. 
and they were just wailing on it. And, and, uh, the operator, Maceo's, I just, I was found a little crevice that I knew if something happened, I could like, that be you okay. could get in. But I, but I just, I just started nervous laughter, hysterically laughing. And I released no. urine. And, uh, and, and I remember the AD, she looked at me and she's like, what are you doing? What, what's going on? I said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then they were like, we're cutting, we're cutting. They were like, what are you trying to kill us all? And I was like, I'm sorry. I just, I thought that was it. I thought we were, that was the moment. And we, uh, luck, we use every chisel we use it in the movie. So it was yeah, it's just okay. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Um, I'm supposed to go. Can I ask one more question before we do Q and A? Uh, I mean, before we're doing a Q and A before <laughs> the audience, we're going to ask. Uh, so I just did one thing I wanted to ask, which is that the movie um, skirts horrible go it, 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 punishing way to live skirting real horrible danger that he's always avoiding by the skin of his teeth and then eventually catches up to him but also eric bogosian he hires these there it's like these guys who live right next door to and with very dangerous people who really do bad you know yeah. kill each other and i just wondered if there was and it kind of goes with my first question if there's a in either the writing or the directing, if there's any point, because the, the tone is is so uh, bold and yet doesn't go ever go beyond what seems feels real and doesn't ever seem like it's commenting on itself in any way. But it's like so there's this horrible danger that he's always playing with fire and then he finally gets burned to death. And I was just wondering if there was any point in the writing or what the points in the writing were or in the directing or making in the film where you felt like you had to not that you where you didn't want to go beyond or whether there was a comic tone that you avoided deliberately or anything to keep yourselves within you know with contained even though even though what's contained is so extreme the humor the humor was was um actually the probably the most conscious you know the the we this because this movie was a 10-year process and every movie that we made up leading up to it was kind of an education to it uh they were all related uh, the previous movie that we made was all was was a one-night uh, adventure basically uh, it was a good time and we ended up we ended up learning a lot about pacing. So that stuff kind of came pretty easy. But what, what was new to us was the comic and the idea, because this character, this 20th century Jew, you know, in the tradition of Rodney Dangerfield and Al Goldstein and Lenny Bruce, you know, is somebody who's always on. And and that was a, a really conscious thing. And that was something that Scott Rudin really was constantly saying, we need more jokes, we need more jokes. Uh, and it was something that we realized that that was going to be how the movie would function. As yeah. com literally the word comic relief, it was yeah. it was like when the pressure would get too much, you'd poke a little hole in it, and and you would and use com comedy to to relieve it. Um, and and on, but, along the same lines, like you have like Eric at the end when he smiles and he's like, oh my god, he did it, he fucking did it. Like that should not happen right before what you're about to see. Yeah. And it's a total change. Like it's you're using that to your advantage. Like okay, he's okay with it. I'm okay with it. And then with Keith, he's like, oh, it's hot in here. He's really giving it like as if nothing is about to go down. And I think that was something also we were very specific about using those elements. And he also even looks away from Howard right before he does it. You know? Yeah, I do think that the, that the, um, <laughs> that the Bogosian character was something that was discussed a lot mechanically in the writing process. Mm -hmm. And then even direct when we first met with Eric for the first time, we talked with him about the moment he chose to do the, to do the role was the moment when he, uh, moves the printer before they put him out the window because that's the moment when he becomes illicitly complicit. You know, that's the one when he's actually takes part in this yeah. guy's demise. Up, up till then, it's a lot of threading, a lot of threats, and and uh, kind of. But but the but with with I remember with with producers we were discussing a lot. 
was, you know, I remember hearing like, why do you want to make the bad guy sympathetic? And I was like, first of all, I always love the bad guy in movies. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and I think that it's, and ultimately it's bad guys are real people too. Uh, and, um, and I don't think that Arno is a bad guy. I think that he just got caught up. You know, there was a, there was a great, uh, article that I read, uh, about this degenerate gambler, uh, written by this, written by a, uh, reporter, a guy who writes, he writes for mostly for the post now. And he did an interview with me and Benny when he started the interview. He's like, all right, I have 30 minutes interview. I'm going to put a timer now, 10 minutes, because I want to pitch you something. You immediately are like, oh God, what is this going to be? But ended up pitching like the most incredible story ever about this woman and back, back right, what have you. But he, and then I, be, we became friends with him and he would send me these amazing articles. He sent me this one article about this guy who just like, fell into a, a person who made some money in a different business and wanted to just make some quick cash. And he, you know, bought into some guy who said he was in the movie industry and, and, and was, had all these articles and flush with cash, just like Howard would be. And it made sense. Okay. I'll lend someone a hundred thousand dollars if the return is going to be a hundred percent return within a month. That's the promise. You know, he just got caught up in it. So the idea of the reality of that, and then at the end of him turning totally, you know, I mean, he obviously becomes a, a reality when you see that he's part of the family. But but at the end, I think what Benny was saying, that smile that Eric yeah. gives is, is really the. Yeah, it's so it's so uh, original, I think, to have him. He, he's really in over his head, too. Yeah, it's totally. Such exactly. a rage. Exactly. You kind of get from the beginning that he's mm -hmm. not a regular, like, sinister <laughs> yeah. person. He's yeah. just he's in a he's in a lot of trouble himself. And it's it, I, I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like it. It's very and the, showing him at the family dinner is obviously amazing. <laughs> um, so we're going to take a couple of questions. I think somewhere anyone have a question for these gentlemen? Surely someone has a question. Sure. Did everyone hear that question was, what's it like to, how's Adam Sandler to work in and discuss his role in the building the project and working through it? So, yeah, we went to Adam in 2011, uh, maybe 2012, and uh, we couldn't get over the moat of celebrity. And we just got to just know. Uh, and then we made a we made a documentary, a basketball documentary. Uh, like the movie, we took every modicum of success and tried to parlay it on itself to try to get a bigger, take a bigger gamble. Uh, and then in 2015, we went to him again. I just discovered this recently. We went to him again. Um, and there was a, he was, we were set, told he was unavailable uh, between the days that we needed. And we said, oh, what about the other six months? He said, He's unavailable then too. Okay, what about the six months after? He's unavailable. So as we got the point. And then we went down the road for a while, developing with uh, Sasha Baron Cohen, trying to convince him we thought we were going to do a more conceptual kind of like serious Borat type thing. And then Scorsese got involved. We made a movie with a, um, with a, uh, a young woman who I met in the Diamond District doing research for this movie, made a whole movie with her about her life. And then uh, with Scorsese saw that movie and attached himself, lifted the profile of this movie. Then Jonah got involved. And the, we had a really hard time writing... Uh, the character younger. Uh, the huge part of it was the patriarchal quality. It's the part that Sandler responded to a lot. And uh, so when he got, became unavailable, we went, you know, we had then, by the way, made good time. And <laughs> whenever we couldn't get the thing off the ground, we would go and make another movie, basically. Uh, and then uh, Sandler saw good time. And the first conversation we had, when he read the script, he was scared. There's a lot of dialogue. The character is, you know, 
does some nefarious things, a handful of nefarious things, and and uh, you know he he was trying to get at this dreamer quality in, in the character. And uh, when I told him Dangerfield, who was obviously a hero to him, uh, that was when the, it started to click. But then we developed, we started the developing process with him because it's a collaboration. We're not authority, even though filmmaking is a, a authoritarian director kind of. It's unbelievably collaborative, and everyone we work with is, is, is a huge part of it. So when we started to work with him, he really pushed on the family stuff, you know, making us really develop that stuff further and further. Uh, and uh, yeah, he, he he let us know immediately. He's like, oh, the don't worry about the dialogue stuff. I can do that. That's I'm actually pretty good with that stuff. Uh, it was the um, it was the it was the yeah. understanding the thing that he was in the pursuit of and understanding the 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 position that this character was in with that he, that took a lot of time and, and he also gave us a ton of time to to before shooting you know he gave us months before to just understand who this character was you know he really wanted to see his motivations with the family see how he worked in in jewelry stores how he how real jewelers sold things to people you know scene with Kevin was like directly inspired by how one of the jewelers talked about how you had to take the jewelry off of the body before you can critique it and how you sell that way. So all these things really bled into the details of the character and it was just the work he put in, you know, he really was dedicated to disappearing into somebody. Yeah, and we have um, you know, one of the casting one of the casting people is here right now and uh, Elaine or she f found the guy who uh appears in the movie very briefly uh um uh, he's the one who pops out and says, you know, what the fuck is going on out here in the very beginning of the movie? He was who Sandler trailed. Um, you know, Sandler gave a lot, like Benny said, a lot of time. And he would, when we were sitting in his, in his showroom, in his office, and he would do a little mannerism, Sandler would look across the room and basically say, we, we need that. And if it didn't make its way into the script, Sandler would bring it into the performance. But he, and then Sandler said, we need him on set when we're shooting on the stage as a vibe ambassador and uh you know todd is his name todd is a character and i love him he's very much like a howard uh he's got a lot going on all the time and but i remember i came in one day at like 9 a.m and the, the showroom was kind of unavailable i said what's going on over the crew's way i was like oh todd's using it todd's using it what is he, what is he using where's it go he's a client in there so I was like, what? So I go in. I said, Todd, what's going on? And he goes, oh, John, this guy is the biggest director in the whole wide world. You don't even know he's going to put me in the movie. Adam Sandler is one of the greatest actors of all time. And he introduced me to Adam Sandler. Adam Sandler is a good friend of mine. This is, I forgot her name. She lives in Syosset and she's looking to buy something. I was like, this is a fake showroom. You know what I mean? But he had real jewelry there and he was using the, 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 ostentatious yeah, yeah. film the optics you, uh, of it the all optics yeah. of a massive film set and he's the authority on set hmm. it was a good time to try to sell something that's something howard would do you could imagine this character somehow getting involved with a, a lumet movie or something you know he was on this he was on the set of uh, stranger among us or something and and he was the guy who was convincing oh they need to you need to hire me every single day i need to be here uh but 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 you know sandler really was brave because we put him four months out before production we uh we we put him into a scenario that was that as an actor is pretty scary. We did a couple of we tested the Julia Fox. The Julia is her first film. Tested her opposite Sandler in a scripted scenario that's not a part of the movie, and uh, and then we did a karaoke thing, and then we did this thing that's scary for an actor. We put him in a sports viewing room, and uh, and it was we surrounded him with degenerate gamblers 
couple of real life bookies, some athletes, some rappers, and some jewelers. And the only script was, this is the game, this is the bet that you have. And everyone there just wants to get to know Adam Sandler, but he's trying to just be ha- figure out who Howard is. He's in beta costume, basically, and makeup and wardrobe and stuff like that, and and uh, and uh, like glasses and such. So he uh, that was tough, was, and that was scary because and we had cameras, we were filming, you know. And he, he when you mess up there, the 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 failure isn't uh, okay. Bad take. Let's do another one. It's the embarrassment, real life embarrassment. So. He gave a lot to this movie, and and we're forever grateful for that. He. One more. Yeah, sorry, I give the long answer. No, it's really in, it's all interesting. Um, how many more do we have? One more question. Okay, who would like to? You, sir. The question was: Will the will the kind of pacing, comic timing, and the interweaving that with the drama be something you guys carry forward in your next project, possibly? Well, it's it's something that. It's comedy is always something that's present. You know, sometimes the jokes get cut off, <laughs> and then what is it then? You know, that's kind of what happens a lot of the times. But it is something that you always that's always there because I feel like the comedy and drama they're so closely related in a lot of the ways. And like the the lead up for a joke is a very interesting way to tell a story, if, even if it doesn't have that punchline. So. It's weird because this was, again, I mentioned this, it was a decade-long project. This, this project was a North Star for us for a while. So it was our, whenever we, whenever we were down, you, you look at our journals, and the journals are so bizarre. I wonder what would someone would think if they read them because everything is through the lens of this guy, Howard. But I'm talking about my real life. But I'm saying Howard this, Howard that. Uh, and I'm using the script to kind of this, the world to kind of understand things that are going on in my life it's, and other things that I'm hearing about. So it's tricky. You talk about going forward. That's the bittersweet thing with this movie is you spend a, a long time making it. And all the projects that we've made in the past 10 years were in service of making this movie. So and they were all educations to them and actual detours. And, and you know, it's, it, it gets it's sad a little bit to think, oh, there's no more Howard. You know what I mean? Literally, we, he's dead. Uh, and <laughs> we haven't seen the other side of the gem. No, no. <laughs> uh, but and a big part of this project, you know, was you know, it's called Uncut Gems. It's a it's about you know the the uh, getting past flaws to to get to some greater meaning or value uh, in someone. And that's again what the last. I don't think that will ever change. I think Fassbender said, you know, every director has one story that they just keep retelling. Uh, and I think a lot of artists that I respect and appreciate do that, musicians, painters, all that. But but um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I can't speak to it because, you know, you don't know the worlds that you're working in. But I do think there will be a general approach to things. I think we have anxiety issues, so there will be some anxiety in the movies probably always. I guess, well, I guess what I was trying to say is so the movies that aren't funny before, sometimes we were probably trying <laughs> yeah, I think every just, every you know. movie we've made, we've seen through the lens of con- except for one. There was yes, there was not there was no humor. Really. I mean, there was a character in it who brought a lot of humor. Yeah. To it. <laughs> On that note, thank you guys. Thank you, everybody. Amazing thank you. Movie. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q and A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of the Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned for more great Q and As with directors Destin Daniel Cretton and Sam Mendez, and be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.